Let's turn to God's words together, and uh, this morning we're continuing our study of First uh, John, First John, and uh, we're going to be reading from chapter two, from verse eighteen to twenty-seven. First John, chapter two, verse eighteen to twenty-seven, and it's on page one thousand and twenty-one in the church Bibles. But first of all, we're going to read from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and uh, chapter thirteen. It's where Ezekiel is prophesying against false prophets, the false prophets of Israel uh, at the time of God's judgment, his displeasure upon the nation in the time of the exile to Babylon. And so we turn to Ezekiel 13, first of all, and verse 1 to 16. And then we'll read from 1 John chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. Therefore, there will be rather a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord." 
1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. And thanks be to God for his holy and living word. And please do have this passage open uh, before you in the book of First John, in chapter 2. Let's pray again together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, such that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit you would plant it deep in us. We pray that through the preaching of your word, you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use the preaching of your word to give us discernment and that we would become increasingly convinced of that which is true, opposed to that which is false, and that we might be bold and zealous for the gospel of our Saviour in all the days to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned in passing a couple of weeks ago uh, that there's really two major areas in the Christian life that the scriptures call us to be watchful of and very careful about. The first is, of course, our conduct, 
and the second is our confession. First of all, the way in which we behave, our general pattern of living. And secondly, what it is we believe, the doctrine that we hold on to. Well, here in this section of First John, it seems to me that the apostle was really seeking to press home both of these important warnings or exhortations of the scriptures. First of all, in the preceding verses, he had just warned us about the danger of loving the world and the things in the world. And so he'd effectively just said, be careful how you are living. But here in these verses, he's now saying, be careful as to who you listen to and what you believe. Be careful who you listen to and what you believe. Why? Because, he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Later on in verse 26, later on in the passage, Verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Those who are trying to deceive you. Now, what's interesting here is that if you think about the timeline of the New Testament, you think about the overall timeline of all that is written in the New Testament, back in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, Chapter 20 of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in that chapter had one final meeting with the elders at the church in Ephesus. And you remember how Ephesus was really like the, it was a bit like the mother church in the region at that particular time. And at that meeting, you remember what Paul said to the elders. He said these words, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He went on to say, I know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, Paul was warning those elders sometime around the mid to late 50s A.D., that a time would come when men would arise teaching twisted things so as to lead God's people away and take them away from his truth. And here was John writing some 50 years after that meeting, effectively testifying to the fact that everything the Apostle Paul had said had now become a reality and was being borne out before his very eyes. Now, a long time before all of this, 
and throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God had already warned his people in places like Daniel chapter 11, God had already warned his people that before the end comes, a singular antichrist figure will arise, one who will attempt to usurp the authority of Christ, one who will have the power to deceive and to lead many people astray. And there are various scriptures also in the New Testament which, of course, also speak of that one who is to come before the end. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, to name just a couple. But here, John is saying, in this last hour, that is, in this time between the first and the second coming of Christ, the thing that you need to be on your guard against and watchful of is not just the coming of the Antichrist, the one who will immediately precede the second coming of our Savior, but also, he's saying, you must understand the fact that that final Antichrist has many forerunners. He has many forerunners who have already gone out to deceive the elect, men who operate according to the same spirit by which he will operate, namely the spirit of the evil one, and men who therefore twist God's word and they deny his truth in order to deceive the people of God. What is it that they deny specifically? We'll look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? Well, in the immediate context in which the Apostle John was writing all of this, these were not people who would have denied that Jesus had anything whatsoever to do with God. In fact, some of these men would have probably accepted that during his ministry, God was with him in a very special way. God did a very particular and unique work through him. In other words, they would have professed faith in a Jesus of sorts. No doubt they would have preached in Jesus' name. But fundamentally, the Jesus they proclaimed was not the Christ whom God had sent into the world. On the one hand, there seems to have been an early form of Gnosticism at work in the church, which we've discussed this before, which held that all matter is evil and therefore God couldn't possibly have taken on a human body, at least not in an eternal sense, maybe temporarily, but not forever. And then on the other hand, there was probably also a form of docetism, docetism, which said that Jesus may have appeared or he may have seemed like a man, but that that, that was nothing more than a kind of Um, mystical 
illusion of sorts. He, he wasn't actually a man with a real physical body, a bit like those who would deny the bodily resurrection of Christ today. You've probably heard this kind of thing where people will claim that it was uh, more of a spiritual resurrection, that it wasn't the physical humanity of Jesus being raised on the third day. In other words, these men denied the fact that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. They rejected the incarnation of our Savior. They rejected the fact and denied the fact that the eternal and only begotten Son took on our humanity and that he lived as one person with two distinct yet inseparable natures such that he was and he is both truly God and truly man. And so these were not men who were simply tinkering around the edges of the Christian faith, debating the finer points of eschatology or what it means to be Presbyterian. Not that these things are not important, but these were men who were attacking what is the very foundation of biblical Christianity and the gospel itself, namely the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we would do well to remember that this is not something that stopped at the end of the first century or with the cessation of what we refer to as the apostolic age. This is something that has continued on throughout church history, throughout the last 2,000 years. John Calvin spoke of this very fact. He spoke and sort of traced what has gone on in history. And he said this, he said, it is not enough to confess in one word that Jesus is the Christ. He must be acknowledged as the Father offers him to us in the gospel. Some, he says, have imagined that he was a mere man. Others, like Arius, adorned him with the name of God, but despoiled him of his eternal divinity. Marcion dreamed that he was a mere phantom. Sibelius imagined that he differed in nothing from the Father, that there was no distinct personhood between the Father and the Son. All these, says Calvin, denied the Son of God, for none of them really acknowledged the whole Christ but they adultered the truth about him so far as they were able and made for themselves an idol instead of Christ. He goes on to say, Pelagius then broke forth. He certainly began no controversy about Christ's essence, allowing him to be true man and God, but he transferred to us nearly all of Christ's honor. It is to reduce Christ to nothing when his grace and power are abolished. Thus, says Calvin, the papists today, placing part of their righteousness and salvation in the merits of works, 
imagining for themselves innumerable advocates through whom they have God favorable to them, have I know not what fictitious Christ, the lively and genuine image of God, which should shine in Christ, they deform by their wicked inventions. Very solemn, isn't it? Very solemn to think that that which is laid down here in scriptures, that which the Apostle John was warning the people of God about towards the end of the first century is something that has then continued on, not just up until the days of John Calvin and the days of the Reformation, but ever since then. Doesn't matter whether we think about the more, the more obvious departures, deviations, heresies such as are found within Islam or uh, Mormonism or the Jehovah Witnesses or whether we think about those errors that may seem to be more subtle on the surface such as within Roman Catholicism or liberal Protestantism, the one thing that all of these things have in common is that they are professing and they are proclaiming to greater and lesser degrees a false Christ. And therefore, they are operating in the same spirit, the same spirit of Antichrist that the Apostle John was warning of here in these verses. It is never, ever uncharitable to declare these things. It is loving towards God and towards his people to make these truths very clear, uh, very sharp in our respective minds. And so having alerted us then to this danger, the Antichrists and their teaching... What is it in particular that John then highlights about them as he seeks to warn the people of God, as he would want, as God would want through John and through the scriptures to warn us here today in the 21st century? Notice, first of all, uh, their subtlety in terms of who and what they once were. Their subtlety in terms of who and what they once were. He says in verse 19, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is saying, it has now become plain that they are not of us, because if they were with us, then they would have continued with us. That is, they would have continued according to the apostolic message that we proclaimed to them and so now it is obvious or at least it should be because they've departed from that message of the truth but immediately prior to that look at what he says they went out from us in other words there's no doubt that John has in mind here men who at one time would have sat around the communion table with the worshipping community of the people of God in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and Galatia and so on. Men who would have professed faith in the gospel. Men who no doubt did many good things in the church. 
And yet in the final analysis, they proved by the message that they came with that they were nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Though they used the name of Jesus, it was not the Jesus who had been revealed to the apostles and then proclaimed and passed on to the church by them. These men denied the truth of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be one of the saddest things, one of the saddest things in the church is to hear men say things like, I used to be an evangelical. I used to believe all these things about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his word, about what is said there, the incarnation and the nature of his atonement and his bodily resurrection and all that is declared through his word concerning moral issues and so on. But now I just see things differently. They may not deny that he is God in the flesh. It may not be as obvious and explicit as that. But their rejection, by their rejection of some aspect of who he is or some aspect of what he has done or something that he has said in the canon of Scripture, by that rejection and denial, they prove that though they went out from us, they are not of us. Secondly, John sets before us here the seriousness of this Antichrist error, the seriousness of the error. Look at what he says from verse 22. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John is saying we're not just arguing here for the sake of arguing. We're not just a bunch of uptight, self-righteous schismatics who are looking to pick a fight over everything that we disagree with. No, the seriousness of the lie is that by denying Jesus Christ, particularly in this case who he is, what he has done, all that he has said, these people, John is saying, effectively rob both themselves and those who hear them, they rob themselves not just of an accurate theology, but of communion with God himself. They rob themselves and deny others of a saving relationship with our Father in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 11, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Later in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father as well. From now on, you do know him 
and have seen him. It is as we embrace and accept the true Christ as he is revealed to us in the word that we are brought by the Holy Spirit and through faith into a saving knowledge of and into real and personal and vital communion with his Father in heaven. So that if, on the other hand, we reject the true Christ, again, whether it be by way of the outright denial of who he really is or the denial of what he has done and what he has said, then in that case we remain, we prove ourselves to be estranged from God and we are devoid of salvation itself. In other words, our Christology, what we believe about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not what we understand when we're perhaps just figuring things out or we're still very young, but what we land on, what we nail the colors of our mast to in the end, all of that really is a matter of life and death. John Stott said the heretic's theology is not just defective, it is diabolical. The fundamental doctrinal test, he said, of the professing Christian concerns his view of the person of Jesus. Now, with all of that in mind, the subtlety of those men who they once were, the seriousness of their falsehood, the final thing we need to see here is that John, the Apostle John, as he writes to the church in the first century, as he seeks to be a pastor to God's people through that which he is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he also highlights here what I'm calling our God-given safeguards, our safeguards against such falsehoods and error. How will we resist and stay clear of a form of teaching which is designed by the evil one to lead us astray, to take us from the narrow path and onto the broad road, which leads to destruction. John gives us here two safeguards. The first concerns what we must do. The second concerns what God has done for us. First of all, in verse 24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now it's very clear that by what you heard from the beginning, what John is speaking of is that which was revealed by God the Holy Spirit through him and the other apostles. And so for us today, he's simply speaking about the word of God. And John is saying, let that word dwell richly within you. To quote Paul in Colossians chapter 3, do not deviate, he's saying, from that which you heard and have received. Actually, in his second letter, his second epistle, in 2 John, verse 9, he goes on to say, 
everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Can't get it more simple than that, can you? Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. I heard Alistair Begg years ago, many years ago, speaking on that particular text, and he told the story of Dick Lucas, uh, how when Dick Lucas was teaching younger men, preparing them for ministry in the church, uh, he would often draw a single line on a chalkboard with a piece of chalk. He'd just draw this single line, and he would say to them, To these men, men, he would say, this is all your work. Stay on the line. Stay on the line. Let me put it like this. If you're someone who is always looking for something more, the next big event, the next speaker, who rolls into town. You're not content with the steady, unspectacular, plain old, systematic, expository teaching and preaching of God's holy and living word. Then you are particularly susceptible to the danger that John is warning of in these verses. Are you content with and committed to abiding in Jesus Christ by holding fast to what he has revealed, staying on the line of his word? Because, friends, that is the great safeguard that he has given that enables us to discern evil and resist the deception that is out there and that is very dangerous. The second safeguard, says John, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 27. First of all, in verse 20, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And then in verse 27, the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John is reminding us here that every believer, not just the apostles then, or ministers and elders in the church today, but every believer has been given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he is the one who illuminates God's word, who enables us to understand the truth of God's word so that we can then discern that which is false and is not from him. And so given the context here, John is not saying in verse 27, therefore there is now no need for any teachers whatsoever in the church. Clearly that would 
fly in the face of the rest of Scripture and the fact that Christ has specifically given, said Paul, the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints in the church. But what he's saying is, you have no need to listen to or be persuaded by any so-called teacher, i.e. these antichrists, if they come claiming that which is contrary to what you have received and is confirmed within you by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You have no need for any teacher who brings anything contrary to what has been given to you and you have received in the word and which is affirmed within your heart by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And so, just as the Holy Spirit gave very particular and special empowerment to the apostles in the first century so that they might then receive the revelation of God and so that they might then lay down the foundation, as it were, the foundation of the Holy Scriptures, so now the same Holy Spirit is our counselor. And as such, he is the one who guides and who directs every believer in such a way that we can understand and hold fast to the word of God. We are to let the word dwell richly within us and we abide in Christ our Savior by yielding to the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the truth of that word, the word which he revealed to the apostles. And insofar as we do, we will avoid these dangers. And friends, you know, just in closing, what I think we must see in all of this is that this, these gifts, the word and the spirit, this is ultimately an expression of God's profound care and his concern for his elect, for his bride the church. You think about it. God has called us out of the darkness into the light. God has procured our salvation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his beloved son. But he knows that as long as we live in a fallen world, we will continue to have an adversary. And he knows that one of the ways in which that adversary prowls around looking for someone to devour is through the deceptive work of antichrist teachers in the church. And therefore, being the loyal and steadfast covenant God that he is, do you see, he gives us these vital safeguards. The plumb line of his word on the one hand and the anointing power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the, on the other in order that we will not be deceived, but that we will stay on the line 
until the end. And so may God grant to each and every one the grace to yield to the Holy Spirit. And may he give each and every one the wisdom to understand that what that primarily and ultimately means, first and foremost, is it means to hold fast to that which he has revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. May it be so. May he guard us and protect us. And let's pray together to that end. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell that though, Lord, he is the exact representation of the divine being, yet at the same time he was pleased to be clothed in the fullness of our humanity. We thank you that he is the God-man. We thank you that he is our Savior and our Lord. We recognize, our Father, that there are many ways in which the true Christ has been denied over the years of church history and continues to be denied in the present day. Sometimes because people will deny his divinity or his true humanity. Sometimes because there is an unwillingness to accept his virgin birth or his bodily resurrection, or his many miracles. Other times, because there are those who would be unwilling to accept his finished atoning work, or the fact that he alone is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we pray, our Father, as a company of your people this morning, we pray into these things, conscious as we are, that there are many, particularly in these days in our own land, who are speaking out and saying, oh, I'm a person of faith too, and yet who deny your word. We pray, Lord, for those who are perhaps just innocently confused, that you would grant them clarity and conviction according to the scriptures. We pray for those who are hardened in their opposition and rebellion against your truth. We pray, Lord, that they would be silenced. We pray ultimately, Lord, that your word would be honored and upheld and proclaimed with clarity, with conviction and with power in these days in which we live. We pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified and exalted through the testimony of his people. We recognize, Lord, that the gospel alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so may this gospel be fully and clearly proclaimed And may many come into your kingdom 
through the preaching and the witness of your saints in our land and throughout the world. We pray at this time, our Father, for a couple of other congregations as we regularly like to do. And we want to pray this morning, Father, for the Kirkcaldy Free Church. And we commit to you uh, John Johnston, the minister there, and the elders and the deacons. And we thank you for his ministry. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would be at work in the congregation and out from the congregation is such that many would be drawn to the Savior in these days. We pray that you would bless and encourage them in the work. We remember Jeff Murray, Father, as he works with John at this time and as he is seeking to prayerfully establish a new congregation in Leavenmouth. Father, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we look to you and ask for the blessing. We pray, Lord, that you would give wisdom and grace to Jeff and to the ten or so people who are working with him. We pray, Lord, that you would establish a new community of saints, if that would be your will in that place, and that this would be an ongoing testimony to the power of God in the midst of dark and unbelieving days. We pray, our Father in heaven, for this congregation here. Uh, we pray for unity. Uh, we pray for a common mind in the work of mission and evangelism. We pray for a sense of being an army on mission together rather than a fragmented, scattered bunch of people who simply meet on a Sunday. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your help that you would stay the hand of evil. We pray that as your word goes out as it did yesterday in the streets of Perth, as it goes out, Lord, through the witness of your people in the cafe, in the mums and toddler group, and in other ways, Lord our God, we pray that you would bless our efforts. We pray that you would be pleased to save those who are perishing, those who are without hope in the world. We ask that you would make us to be burdened to that end, uh, that we would be burdened for our respective communities, the places in which we live. And Lord, that we would be encouraged and strengthened to do the work that you have given to us. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this Sabbath day to us here and to all the saints throughout Scotland and throughout the United Kingdom and in every nation of this world that you made. We pray that it would be a day of rest, a day of renewal, a day of strengthening in Christ. And we ask it all in his precious name. Amen.